Hello, listeners. Come in. The night air is chill, and you must need to eat and rest. My name is Alastair Murden. Pull up a chair. I'd like to invite you to hear a tale of suspicion, of terror, of a never-ending urge to confront the unknown. A tale of superstitions. In this podcast, I've told you stories of sportsmen, witches, tourists, and actors. People whose professions or hobbies are ruled by ritual. I've also told you stories of how these practices are formed by centuries of history. But attend. Today, we're going to a very dark place. Bring your crosses, your holy water, garlic too, if you think it will help. But most importantly, bring a shovel. For the answers you seek lie six feet under. In a few short moments, we'll take a trip to the past and face a monster that lives on human blood. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I can already guess what went through your mind when you saw this episode title. You thought, hang on, Alastair, vampires aren't a superstition. Nobody seriously believes these undead creatures live among us waiting to drain our blood. Well, that, listener, is where you're wrong. There was a time when vampirism was as real to humanity as the common cold. It tore through whole families and laid waste to entire communities. Or at least, that was the common belief. You see, in the 19th century, Europe and New England were seized by an unstoppable disease. It was known by a number of chilling names, such as consumption or the Great White Plague. Today, we know it as tuberculosis, but at the time, it was an untreatable menace. Deaths were relentless. The more forward-thinking doctors of the time proposed it was caused by microscopic beings in our blood, or animacula. But some communities, particularly in colonial New England, came to a different conclusion. Today's story comes from Europe in the early 18th century. The precise date, I'm afraid, has been lost to time. It is the story of a doctor who wants to save lives and an invisible monster determined to see him fail. Dr. Benjamin Walpole paced the warehouse. Men and women lay on either side of him, writhing in pain and terror, A scarf was wrapped tightly around his face, but if you looked closely, you could see the emotion in his eyes. He had come to this remote mountain town to give people hope, but three more had died today, and plenty of others teetered on the edge of the grave. Though Benjamin could slow the disease by leaching out the infected blood, 
he could not reverse the symptoms. He was buying time that he did not know how to use. After a long afternoon of studies, he stepped out into the cold autumn air and lit a pipe to calm his nerves. Astrid, the local medicine woman, appeared behind him. She was bright and young, the daughter of an apothecary. Benjamin was initially skeptical of her lack of traditional education, but she had proven herself invaluable. She said, We're having trouble with the leeches. Benjamin blinked. What do you mean by trouble? They aren't drinking nearly as much blood as they should. Some die mere minutes after they drop off. Benjamin wrapped his scarf tighter around his throat. I've never seen this happen with consumption before. We might have a new strain on our hands. Or another disease entirely. Astrid's eyes widened. But before she could speak, a carriage rolled up beside them. For a horrible moment, Benjamin thought it was there to deposit more bodies. The driver did not dismount, however. He leaned over and said that Dr. Walpole had been summoned to the Kolorov estate. Benjamin and Astrid looked at each other, then, as if by mutual agreement, looked to the horizon. On a mountain ridge above the town sat a lonely castle, the home of the Kolorov family. Wealthy, former nobility who had remained sequestered from the village in hope of saving themselves from the disease. Benjamin looked to Astrid and said, Stay here. Look after the infected. I'll return as soon as I learn what they want. Astrid stopped him with a hand on the arm. Some of the villagers might take offense to you caring for a rich man's life over theirs. Many already think you're an English snob. Benjamin shook her off. Divides of class mean nothing to a plague. Blue blood tastes the same as red. If the illness has spread that far, then I fear what it means for all of us. The Kolorov estate was a cavernous place, half rich man's villa, half castle. Battlements met sloped rooftops in haphazard angles, as if built by an indecisive architect. As they approached, Benjamin noticed the doors were set in an imposing arch, wide enough for a small army to pass through. To his surprise, he was greeted not by a group of servants, but by one man. His host had the barrel-chested frame of a great warrior, but his limbs shook and he leaned on a wooden cane. He grinned broadly in greeting. Welcome, friend. Come inside out of the cold. I fear it will rain tonight, and the last thing we need is for our doctor to fall sick, eh? There was no mistaking him. This was Dragon Kolorov, patriarch of the family. He told the doctor that in the last year he had lost two of his grandchildren to this disease. Benjamin noticed that as he spoke, his breaths were shallow and the coughs seemed to cause him great pain. The doctor said, you should have your family brought down to the village so that they do not infect other residents of the house. Dragon coughed violently. <laughs> and have them crammed shoulder to shoulder with the rest of the sick. I do not think so. We have plenty of room here to quarantine them without forcing unnecessary discomfort. The doctor did not press the issue. Dragon continued. Speaking of comfort, you have the face of a man who has spent too much time with death. Stay up here a while. I have a spare room. You can regain your strength. 
Benjamin wanted to say no. He wanted to say that his duty lay with the townspeople, but something about this enormous mansion called to him. Perhaps a night away from the town's chaos would allow him to think up a new strategy to combat this plague. He regretted the choice almost immediately. He did not find his new lodgings restful at all. He slept fitfully, waking to strange sounds from the world outside. First, what seemed to be echoes from the village below, then a peculiar scraping at his window. It sounded as if something was trying to claw its way into his room, a tree branch perhaps. But upon waking, he found no nearby trees that grew high enough to reach the window. He could not dwell on this mystery for long. Before dawn, a servant came to his door and bid him get dressed. Dragon's brother had died during the night. Alexander Kolorov was like a skeleton clothed in a thin layer of skin. His eyes and mouth gaped open, frozen in a silent scream. Benjamin leaned over the body, scrutinizing the pupils and throat. Dragon hovered at the door, a look of uncertainty on his face. What are you looking for, doctor? Benjamin wiped his forehead. Evidence. Anything that can point me to what we're dealing with. All I'm seeing right now is more signs that it is not consumption as we suspected. Dragon said, Please, doctor, I am not a medical man. Explain. What do you mean? Benjamin stood. To see a man die of consumption is a horrible thing. They grow weaker and weaker until their very insides collapse and their lungs flood with blood. Outwardly, they look very much like this, but this body is dry. Where did all the blood go? Dragon had no answer. Not that Benjamin was expecting one. Dragon soon retreated to his chambers. Dr. Walpole remained with the body, bathed in pale pre-dawn light. Just as he was contemplating going back to sleep himself, something caught his eye. Clutched in the dead man's hand was a small scrap of paper. Benjamin pried it loose, careful not to tear it in the process. Written on it in an unsteady hand were five words. It knows how we die. The doctor left to spend the day in the afflicted village, but returned to the manor for the night. He slept again fitfully. The sound of scratching and clawing tickled the edges of his sleep. He awoke. The room was empty. The sound had ceased, and the room was silent, bathed in shifting moonlight. Something stirred in the corner, a shadow darker than the room around it. For a terrible moment, Benjamin was convinced that his room was not empty, that he was being watched like a butterfly in a killing jar. But he could hear nothing, and whatever shadow he had seen did not move again. Soon, his exhaustion overcame him. He slept, and in his sleep, he dreamed of smothering darkness. When he looked at himself in the mirror, he hardly recognized the man staring back at him. He was paler than a sheet, cheeks hollow, sick. But his work in the village could not wait. Benjamin did not wait for his hosts to rise. He woke one of their servants and took their carriage back down the mountain. Astrid was already busy when he arrived. She did not look up as she greeted him. 
That's quite the commute you have, Doctor. That evening, a small council assembled in the town hall to discuss the spreading illness. It included four individuals, Benjamin, Astrid, the local constable Mikhail, and Father Lucas, there to represent the interests of the common people. As he entered the chamber, Benjamin felt Astrid's concerned gaze on him. For the first time that day, she seemed to be noticing how unwell he was. Lucas was the first to speak, addressing Benjamin directly. He was a little man with bright blue eyes and thin, wispy hair. Sanguination days next week. I don't expect an outsider to understand, but on this day, we gather in the graveyard to honor the departed. Some of us are concerned you are going to propose restrictions. Benjamin held up his hands, placating. He said, I do not intend to cancel the event. I'm merely suggesting caution when planning any gathering near the graveyard. We do not yet know how this illness spreads. The priest looked far from satisfied with the doctor's answer. He turned to Astrid. What do you think, miss? Surely this is all blown out of proportion. Maladies are a fact of life. We should not hide from them like cowards. Astrid met his gaze firmly. I stand by the doctor. As the group parted for the evening, Benjamin took Mikhail aside. He told him he feared for his own safety and requested a guard outside his window at Kolorove Manor. Mikhail obliged, any excuse to get his men away from the sick. That night, Benjamin awoke in the dark again. Only this time, it wasn't the dark shadows that roused him, but a scream from outside. Benjamin ran down the stairs and out into the courtyard. The guard had his pistol out, pointing it wildly into the shadows. Some thing was darting around him, red eyes glinting in the dark. He discharged his pistol into the shadows. In the flash of light, Benjamin saw the creature. It was a woman, hair wild and skin grey as ash. At least, it had been a woman. Now, it was something more like a ghoul. Its dress, most likely quite elegant at some point, was now torn to rags. In that moment, he was struck by a feeling of certainty. This thing was somehow responsible for the deaths, and if he could understand it, they might have a chance of survival. Coming up, Dr. Walpole attempts to make sense of a nightmare. This is Story Booth Daily. Tune into this new podcast for your daily fix of real life stories from real people around the world. We've received thousands of stories that we want to share with you, from talking about being ghosted or realizing that being popular isn't all that great sometimes. No topic is off the table. This is a podcast that's not only for you, but by you. Story Booth Daily premieres November 8th, so be sure to check us out Monday through Friday. Story Booth Daily is a wheelhouse and Spotify original from Parcast. Now, back to the story. Dr. Benjamin Walpole was on the cusp of discovery. For weeks, he'd been fighting a disease with no hope of headway, until he found a creature that might hold the key to understanding. The flash from the deputy's pistol lit the night, revealing the ghoulish female figure darting through the shadows. The bullet flew wide, exploding into the bark of a tree trunk, but the sudden sound and light were enough to momentarily stun the creature. 
the deputy lunged and Benjamin followed. The disoriented creature tried to throw them off, but they managed to drag it back into an empty room of the manor. The same room where the late Alexander Kolorov had died, a place everyone in the household diligently avoided. They chained the thing to the bedposts. The doctor's task was clear. Once he understood this creature, its morphology, its behaviors, its weaknesses, he would know how to protect the village. He called on Astrid, the apothecary's daughter, to help him in his research. He assured her none of their work prior to this was more important. Absolutely nothing. Astrid was clearly shocked and horrified by the creature's appearance, but said she could not spare the time to study it. She told him, You must go back to the village and regain the trust of the people. They know I'd do anything for them, but you... Well, your trips to Kolorov Manor make you seem like the kind of doctor who can be bought. Even if you found a miracle cure tomorrow, they would not trust you to administer it to them. Benjamin did not listen. Astrid, please, surely the evidence will speak for itself. Stay here. If you help me, we can get this done in half the time. What matters is the lives saved, not the feelings spared. Nothing will happen to them if they wait. That was when Astrid told him, The deaths haven't stopped Benjamin. Neither has the spread of illness. Benjamin's heart sank. There must be more of them. Not heeding Astrid's advice, he went to work studying the monster he had restrained. If there was an army of such creatures living in the village, he had to know where they came from. And not long after, his experiments gave him a clue. For the last fortnight, they had been using leeches to siphon infected blood out of the plague victims. Benjamin brought a dozen or so of these creatures to the house to test on his new patient. While the thing slept, Benjamin carefully applied leeches to her flesh and watched to see what would happen. After a minute, the leeches dropped off, quivered, and died. Benjamin made a note of this and went to bed, thinking no more of it. Benjamin awoke to a horrible sucking sensation upon his foot. He opened his eyes to see the black worm-like shapes of the leeches converging upon his bed. Some had already latched onto his exposed skin. They felt dry and strangely brittle. With a shock, he realized these were the leeches that had died mere hours before. Whatever ungodly force possessed the poor woman in the other room had reanimated them, giving them the ability to crawl across the floor like slugs. Benjamin staggered to his feet and broke out of his room, not stopping until he reached the parlor. He tore the attached critters from his skin and threw them into the fireplace. They steamed upon the embers and were still. When he had come to his senses, he made a note of this. Fire. Fire hurts the undead. Benjamin continued his experiments upon his captive ghoul. Slowly but surely, he made new and fascinating discoveries. It was repelled by garlic, sunlight caused its skin to blister, and it would eat nothing but blood. Benjamin knew without a shred of a doubt that it was this thing, this vampire, that had attacked him. After the incident with the leeches, he grew convinced that his captive was not the only vampire feasting on the town. It probably wasn't even the first. 
It was then that he remembered Alexander's note. It knows how we die. A chilling thought struck Benjamin. How we die. It knows about the Great White Plague. The vampire was hiding under the simple disguise of an illness. Like a tiger hiding in a field of tall grass, its prey would be caught unaware. It could strike from the shadows, knowing everyone would blame the deaths on consumption. It and its offspring would drink their fill without humanity ever knowing they existed. As chilling as this revelation was, it gave Benjamin something that he'd been missing for ages. Hope. If these monsters feared discovery from humans, that's just what he'd give them. He'd make sure everyone knew what they were and how to repel them. That evening, Dr. Walpole gathered Dragon, Lucas, Mikhail and Astrid at the town hall. He shared his theory and recommended that the town impose a strict curfew. Most importantly, the populace had to steer clear of the graveyard after sunset to protect themselves from the undead. At this, Father Lucas exploded. Sanguination day is tomorrow. I will not give in to fear. He turned to the others. I knew he would do something like this. Let us get comfortable with some light regulations. Then, at the last minute, impose tyranny. Benjamin tried to reason with him. At least tell your congregation to wear garlic flowers around their necks. My studies have shown it repels these creatures. Perhaps crucifixes and holy water will repel it as well. This did not help. Don't try to placate me with your silly solutions. Perhaps in London they would fall for this, but we know a charlatan when we see one. Dragon put a hand on the priest's shoulder, calming him. How about you show us this monster, yes? Give us proof it exists. Benjamin happily complied. He took them back to the Colorover State, through that massive arched doorway and into Alexander's former bedroom, which now served as his makeshift laboratory. But when he opened the door, the bedposts were split in two. All that remained were chains and the implements of his study. The vampire had disappeared. Father Lucas sneered. The doctor has clearly gone mad. He's let panic get the best of him. Benjamin turned to Astrid in desperation. You saw it just a week ago. You saw what she'd become. All eyes went to the medicine woman. She did not blanch before the attention. Yes, she said. There was a deeply unwell woman here who Benjamin was studying. More than this, I cannot say. Benjamin pointed to the constable. Mikhail, one of your men was attacked by it. He helped me restrain the creature. Mikhail scratched at his salt and pepper moustache. That man fell sick and died several days ago. The dead cannot be your witness, Dr. Walpole. Dragon took the doctor by the arm and led him away from the others. You look unwell yourself, Benjamin. You're pale and you've lost a lot of weight. Perhaps you need to go back to London and recover. Benjamin stepped away from Dragon and sat heavily into a chair. 
he said, I am an outsider. I cannot tell you all how to live your lives, but I can say this. If you don't heed my advice, then tonight you will be in grave danger. He tore a page of notes out of his journal and handed it to Dragon. His notes on how to protect oneself against the vampires. Even if you do not believe me, please, where is the harm in being cautious? Hesitantly, Dragon took the paper. Benjamin did not rise until the afternoon. The sunlight pained him, forcing him to remain bedridden until clouds blocked the sky. Sanguination Day had arrived. He wandered the town, hat worn low and scarf over his face. He saw signs posted throughout the town, probably by Astrid. They included a list of precautions the villagers could take, including wearing garlic flowers or carrying a crucifix. However, any optimism was short-lived. He saw people scoffing and openly mocking the announcement. They called it a sign that the doctors hadn't the slightest idea what they were doing. The behavior of Father Lucas only made things worse. He didn't even allow crucifixes or holy water to be distributed at the church. Benjamin took a wreath of garlic for himself, earning suspicious looks from the passers-by. One of them scoffed and said, Coward, under their breath. He found Astrid outside the city hall. He approached and asked if she would speak to Mikhail for him. They should place guards around the cemetery, arm them with garlic, axes, and crucifixes if they're men of faith. Astrid gave him a pitiful look. I will do what I can to keep the people safe. Some have listened to me. Those few are planning on gathering in the town hall instead of the graveyard. But if you're right, I'm afraid we're all doomed. Benjamin left her to her preparations. She may be able to save the people, but he had a different task ahead of him. He would go to the graveyard as heavily armed as he could and confront his enemy face to face. Night fell far too soon. The sun set and the graveyard lit up like a chandelier on the horizon. The signs of families adorning the graves of their loved ones with candles and flowers, trinkets and jewelry. Benjamin wrapped the garlic and a crucifix around his neck. He had no sword, so instead he fashioned a crude stake out of the broken bedposts. He took a torch to light his way. It was dark when he ventured out towards the cemetery. He passed through the quiet village, the lights from the cemetery guiding him like the North Star. Then he heard the screams. He broke into a run. The cemetery was drenched in blood. Before him was a cacophony of movement. Bodies latched onto bodies. Men, women and children screamed and cried. The occasional flash of gunpowder told Benjamin that Mikhail's men were there and they were losing ground. The attackers moved so fast that Benjamin could hardly see them. They struck like birds of prey, pouncing from behind graves, tearing into victims before they saw them coming. The body of a young boy lay by Benjamin's feet. The undead leeches swarmed over it, pulsing as they drank deeply. A family of four managed to free themselves from the chaos and run towards Benjamin. The mother attempted to cry out, but it was hopeless. One of the undead caught her and tore her throat open. The family scattered into the shadows. Their screams ended abruptly. 
Another figure stumbled in the same direction, face so pale it stood out in the night. It was Father Lucas. Seeing Benjamin, he tried to say something, but all that came out was a wet gurgle. Benjamin raised his stake and took a step forward. A familiar hand rested upon his shoulder. He turned to see Dragon Kolarov. The man was no longer weak and coughing. He stood tall and a strange red light was in his eyes. I am sorry that it came to this, Doctor. I did like you, you know. Benjamin took a step back. In the firelight, he could see how Dragon's features were warped. His jaws were wide and distended, just as that woman's had been. Had she been the ill wife the doctor had never seen? How easily Benjamin had trusted the rich man. How naive he had been. Dragon said, You are not the first, see? We can usually dissuade the doctors from touching such a disease-ridden town. Usually you city boys stay for only a few months, then leave when the situation seems hopeless. Leave to study as if the answers to death lie in your books. But sometimes there are the troublesome ones. When Benjamin found his voice, he stammered. What about the people? Do the people never wonder why you've lived here so long and remain unaffected? The vampire smiled. The people will believe whatever makes them most comfortable. You never stood a chance against us. Benjamin thrust the stake forward with all his might, but the vampire was quicker. It seized both the doctor's hands and forced them apart. Its jaws spread open like a bear's and clamped down on Benjamin's throat. Benjamin's mind went blank with agony. He was sure he was going to die until he heard a cry from the town. The pressure from the vampire's jaws released as Dragon looked up. There was a host of torches descending on the cemetery. Benjamin did not see what happened next. His vision went hazy and he fell onto the earth. Darkness overtook him. When he woke, Astrid was by his side. It was early morning, the sky a pale red. <coughs> what? happened. Where's Dragon? Astrid took Benjamin's hand and said, We managed to chase him off. When the rest of the town heard the sounds of slaughter, we voted to save our fellow man rather than hide. Benjamin fumbled in his pockets and produced his journal. With bloody hands, he pressed the book toward her. Astrid, I need you to take this. It's all my notes and research about the vampire. Add to it. Spread the word. Otherwise, these creatures will never be stopped. He gave a rueful smile. You've always been a better doctor than I. If I'd listened to you earlier, I may have made it. He took a deep breath and added, There's one other thing I need you to do for me. Soon after, Dr. Benjamin Walpole passed away. Astrid disposed of the body according to his instructions. She cut out Benjamin's heart, burned it, and ate the ashes. If Benjamin's notes were accurate, this would inoculate her against vampirism. Survivors of the night were few, and none of them wanted to stay in the town. 
Dragon Kolarov and the other vampires still stalked the shadows. And so, Astrid gathered the living and made her way west. She hoped that at least one of them would reach civilization alive and make the vampires' weaknesses known to the world. We do not know if any of them made it, but we know their knowledge survived, empowering future generations of vampire hunters. We don't know exactly when people first started talking about vampires and vampirism. Many trace the origins of this creature to Slavic Europe. But what's important here is not the vampire itself. It's the belief in the monster. As Dr. Walpole's story suggests, the concept of vampirism comes not only from bedtime stories, but fear of disease. Some scholars cite rabies as an early inspiration, others a rare genetic condition known as porphyria. Porphyria causes extreme sensitivity to sunlight and turns the teeth reddish-brown. These symptoms could be temporarily delayed by ingesting blood, though I shudder to think of how they came to that discovery. Vampire superstition reached its peak in the 18th and 19th century when tuberculosis epidemics were a seasonal occurrence. A particular outbreak of so-called consumption struck Vermont in the 1790s, igniting what would become known as the New England Vampire Panic. For the next hundred years, frightened New Englanders would see loved ones wasting away and assume that they were being fed upon by the dead. So, they would disinter the corpses, mutilate them, and burn the remains. Sometimes, even forcing the sick person to consume the ashes. The last of these New England vampires was Mercy Brown, whose deceptively healthy-looking corpse convinced locals that she was to blame. Some even claimed to have found fresh blood in her heart. As ghastly as these practices seem, the people who did this were not villains or gleeful grave robbers. They were desperate, and if you look at it a certain way, you could say they were following a version of the scientific method. They thought invisible monsters were killing their loved ones, so they sought them out and killed them. In a sense, they were right. Only the monsters in question were bacteria, not the undead. This folk medicine version of vampirism demonstrates what happens to a disease when it's not understood. It doesn't go away. Rather, it transforms from a biological reality into an inescapable nightmare. Today, we are mostly safe from tuberculosis thanks to vaccines. But superstitions, fear, and distrust of science are far more difficult plagues to weed out. There may always be some among us who prefer to believe in vampires over bacteria, but if we want to overcome our demons, our only hope is to arm ourselves with truth and face them head on.
Thanks for listening to Superstitions. You can find all episodes of Superstitions as well as all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Join us next week for another superstitious story. Go safely and leave something of the happiness you bring. Superstitions is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Superstitions was written by Robert Teamstra, with writing assistance by Stacey Nemec and Andrew Kelleher, fact-checking by Anya Bailey, and research by Brian Petrus. I'm Alastair Murden. This is Storybooth Daily. Tune into this new podcast for your daily fix of real-life stories from people around the world. Storybooth Daily premieres Monday, November 8th on Spotify. Storybooth Daily is a wheelhouse and Spotify original from Parcast.